All right, well, what a pleasure it is to uh, worship with you and be here with you on this Easter Sunday morning. Um, it's just a great joy to celebrate the resurrected Lord with you. And I'm going to invite you now to uh, join with me as I get to read this brilliant and beautiful and true story uh, from the Gospel of John. And we're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning. And before I read these words, let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would get me out of the way so that the truth that you would wish to speak this morning to each and every person here uh, would be heard, that you would give us ears to hear your message so that we might be encouraged by you, so that we might find new life in you, so that we might come to know you and the reality of what this means for our lives. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. John chapter 20, starting at verse 11, says this. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. There's a recent BBC article by a guy named Richard Fisher who describes two Oxford philosophers that we're studying, of all things, catastrophes. And you know, all those things that befall us as human beings, super volcanoes, asteroids, and of course, pandemics. And as they were researching, they discovered that they were missing a term. One term that in all of their research they had yet to find explored in the literature. It was this concept that they knew was real, but they didn't have a word for. What happens when something drastically good happens in the world? You see, there had been so much exploration of all the catastrophes, but what happens when something suddenly happens to all of humanity that is so dramatically good 
that you could call it like a good catastrophe. And they went and they searched around and they, they read all kinds of things. And finally, they found one of my favorite things, one of my favorite articles by a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and this is the guy who wrote The Lord of the Rings. But in between uh, writing The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, he wrote an essay called On Fairy Tales. And a lot of people say that this is where Tolkien really found his voice, really understood what he was trying to do and contribute through his art to the world. And this essay, one section of it, takes up this issue of the part in everybody's favorite movie, story, and fairy tale where things get as dark as they seemingly possibly could get all the way to the brink of absolute terror and destruction when all of a sudden there is a radical reversal and the news is different. Things have changed. And actually these philosophers, uh, they didn't love this word that Tolkien used, but he called it a catastrophe, meaning a good catastrophe. And so what they did is they had a contest. They said, well, we like the concept, but we don't like the word. And so they, they had a contest to go out and say, how do we find a good word for what this concept is? And so here are some of the ideas that people proposed in this contest. They called it an anatrophy. I hate this one. It's like the opposite of a catastrophe, right? Catastrophe goes down, Annie goes up, so it's an anti-catastrophe. Or this one has a little more of a ring to it, a de la joy. De la joy, feeling of transcendent joy. Or a plethoration, the realization of abundance. Or this one, an Icelandic word that I cannot say. Gliotar means tears of joy in Icelandic. Some lighter suggestions were like a hyper-gooding. That sounds like somebody who's in the tech world. A hyper-gooding. Or simply a big surprise, right? A big, happy surprise. And the winning entry was from botany, efflorescence. A process of unfolding and blooming. You see, if you've been tracking with Jesus or if you've ever been to Easter before, then you know that really we already have a word for this, don't we? That to capture all of this meaning, um, we just use the word resurrection. And we're here today truly in every possible way, whether we know it or we don't know it, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The 19th century philosopher Soren Kierkegaard talked about anxiety. I talked about why when we're human beings walking this earth, we experience this feeling of anxiety. And he talked about how in a world where there's possibility, there will always be anxiety. And the more possibilities there are, the more uh, anxieties there are because you have to make a choice, and out of that choice, then all the other choices disappear. And so it's hard to know which choice is the right choice in order to get to where you want to go in life. And so the more possibilities, the more anxiety. 
And thankfully, he didn't just leave us hanging with the dilemma of being human and what it feels like when there's so many possibilities, especially living in an age of anxiety like ours has been described as, but he actually prescribes an antidote to anxiety. He simply writes this, to find the idea of which I am ready to live and to die. Meaning passion is the anecdote to anxiety. To find, to will the one thing above every other thing is the way in which anxiety gives way to love. And this is exactly what drove Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been exploring throughout the church through Lent and through Holy Week as we celebrated on Good Friday, Good Friday, Christ's passion, Jesus Christ's passion for each and every single person here, for each and every person on earth, that out of the great love of Jesus Christ, he was willing to go to the cross. Out of his passion for humanity, he was willing to go to the cross to express God's love to each and every single person. That is the antidote to anxiety. That's the thing that Mary Magdalene discovered at the tomb. You remember in our story that I just read, as she's sitting at the tomb, she is distraught and in tears. And the reason why she's so upset is because this person that she had met, who had healed her and who she was following and who she thought was going to be the one that would save her people, she had watched die on a cross, embarrassed. And not only that, now she's at the tomb, and the only possibility that she can imagine about why there's an empty tomb in front of her is because somebody had stolen the body and taken it away to add insult to injury. And there she is, and she's weeping. And yet maybe like in this picture you you can see here, that there's something else going on, even though she can't imagine it in the moment of her crisis, in this difficult moment, there's something else happening. Maybe you've had this experience too, where in a moment of heartbreak, all you can experience is the loss of it. All you can experience is the tragedy of it. But maybe as you look on after a few years at that moment that seemed like a defeat, that you can interpret it as a direction, that even though it was difficult and it didn't work out the way you wanted it, that five years later you can look back and say, if that didn't happen to me, then this wouldn't have happened, then this wouldn't have happened, and I wouldn't be who I am today. I wouldn't be the person that I am. And in some ways, that's the meaning of this picture, that Jesus, even though she is in her moment of crisis, that Jesus is there in this picture even in the moment where she can't imagine the possibility of Jesus, Jesus is still in the picture at the place of the tomb, at the very place of death, Jesus is there. He's coming up to Mary Magdalene, and then we know what happens is that when she turns around, we get another picture here. Um, This moment, and maybe you can see it, of just you catastrophe, a good surprise, a big, happy surprise, resurrection. 
the look on Mary Magdalene's face when she realizes that everything has changed. What a beautiful picture for us to take a look at and think of our lives, to think of the things in our life, those catastrophic moments in our lives and ask along with Mary, is it possible that this is the thing that is worth our passion? Is this the thing that we are willing to will above all else? This is something that in my household I'm really excited today to celebrate with my eight-year-old son. Because I don't know if you heard, but right after the service today, we are going to have a New Orleans-style parade straight from here out to the beach. And if you didn't hear about that today, you're hearing about it now, and I'm inviting you to join the parade. And at the end of that parade, my son, along with his friends, a few other friends, is going to get baptized. And as he gets baptized, what he's saying is he's saying, I am choosing above all else to follow Jesus follow Jesus through death and through resurrection. There's a couple of verses that I want to share with you that speak to this reality. The first is from Isaiah. says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's not only Mary who has grief, but Jesus who has grief. Jesus' longing is for all of us to come to know in fullness his love. And wherever that is incomplete, wherever that has not yet been made full, wherever that has not been realized, Jesus is in grief. Not only that, he's willing to go to the places of death and darkness to reach out and to grab us and say, even in the midst of your deep darkness, even in the place of your worst possible experience, Even in your sin, humanity, I'm there to pull you out. 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. There's a very definition of love. There's no other definition that matters other than this definition. But thankfully, that's not the entire story. That's the beginning of the story. And then Paul, picking up on this reality, says, can I tell you a mystery? Can I lean in really quickly? Would you bring your curiosity really quickly this morning to this story? And just lean in and hear the Apostle Paul tell you this truth, that for the rest of your life you could unpack and come to know and see it like layers of unfolding beauty. Like the flowers bloom today because of this reality, because of what the Apostle Paul is going to share with us in this mystery. He says this, Listen, I tell you a mystery. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? 
Now, if those just sound like words and they're not the words for you this morning, then what I want to do is just invite you to take a new posture and just get a little practical with one last illustration this morning. Um, it comes from an uh, experience I had with my four-year-old daughter this, uh, a couple weeks ago as I tried to teach her how to fly a kite. You see, she had uh, been seeing pictures of her brother who had learned how to fly a kite at school, and she really, really wanted to be like her brother and fly one of those kites. And so we one day were uh, uh, just hanging out at the house, and she pointed to the little Spider-Man kite that Remy was using, and she said, Dad, today's the day. I'm going to learn how to fly a kite. And as four-year-olds do, they make sure that they get what they want, right? And so even though I knew that there was no wind on that day, I thought it was going to be a little tricky to, to learn how to fly a kite on, on that particular day, we went off into the park. And it was a little bit sad to watch her as we kind of let a little string out. And then there she was, little Glory Rose, at the park running as hard as she could, as hard as she could. And this little, little Spider-Man... Just, just dragging along over and over and over. And she's looking at me like, Dad, why can't you teach me how to do this? And I'm looking at her like, there's nothing I can do to help you. And she was dragging the kite along and dragging it along. Finally, she'd get a little lift because she ran as hard as she possibly could and she wouldn't give up. But maybe, maybe your experience of who God is is like that sometimes. Maybe your experience of trying to understand what it means to live a life with God is, is actually being interrupted because you think you need to bring the wind. You think it's out of your strategic plans and your great effort that somehow you're going to understand what life is all about. And you run, and you run, and you run, and maybe you catch a little wind, but you realize that that wind is only caught by your great effort, and then the second you're exhausted and you collapse, that kite falls down again. And thankfully on this day, as you've seen here, that eventually the wind came. And so I got to teach my little girl the right posture where to stand and where to be to allow for that kite to catch the wind and to watch her as she held her string and made it dance in the air and she realized she didn't have to keep running and running and running all she had to do was stand where the wind was and she was in the right place kierkegaard one more time describes how we cannot get the truth by capturing it so much as by it capturing us. Imagine you're walking into a beautiful place, a holy place, a sacred space, and you think, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get my lasso and I'm going to capture this beauty. Absolutely not, right? When we stand before God's great creation in the beautiful spaces, we don't think, I'm capturing this. No, we think, I am being captured by this. The same is true of Jesus' resurrection. 
That's not so much that we go and capture it and make it ours so much as we surrender and catch the wind. And we pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might, wherever we can, just go wherever the wind may be and try and catch the wind. And then for those of us who know the reality, have learned to catch the wind, then the invitation for you is what? To never give up holding that string. You know, Jesus, before he goes to the cross, he teaches his disciples one last thing. He speaks about how apart from him, they can do nothing. Just says, abide in me. Be with me. Learn to hold this string. No matter what life throws at you, learn how to hold this string. There's a poem by William Stafford that captures this reality. It just says this. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. May we again be rem reminded this morning those of us who have been following Jesus, just stay connected to the thread. No matter what this year threw at you, the resurrection is still true. This thread is still your guiding force in all of life. And then one final reminder for us this morning is that uh, we're not only meant to hold the string, but one day there will be so much wind that we will learn that we can fly. That one day, there won't even need to be a thread anymore. We'll just take off with the wind. I love how C.S. Lewis describes this in his final installment of the Chronicles of Narnia series, which is eight books long, in The Last Battle. Maybe you know the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, this is Lewis uh, using fairy tale imagery in order to teach a reality that we have hints and whispers of, of how this isn't the only world, that there's actually another world within our world and they're intermixing, right? And he uses the wardrobe analogy as a way to speak to this thing that we feel deep inside of us. But in the last battle, there's something different that happens in this story than all the other stories, where, like you might imagine, there's a battle and things aren't going well and they're getting darker and darker for all the Narnians. And you expect Aslan, who's the God figure in the story, to come and to fight in battle with them and to help defeat the evil armies that are attacking them. But actually in the last battle, something different happens. Aslan comes to save by just declaring that it is the last day in Narnia. And the story goes on and actually gets worse and gets worse until all of the Narnians are backed into this small stable and they assume utter defeat as they look into this small space and realize they're all being backed into this 
little, small, dark, cramped space. But as they go in, they realize that they are actually in a new and bigger Narnia. And they hear this refrain. They hear these words, further up and further in. And they realize that the the Narnia that they were in is just a shadow of what they are experiencing. And as they go in, they meet all of the other characters from all of the other Narnia stories. And they go further up, further in, further up, and further in. Today, my desire for you on this Easter Sunday is that you would know that you were made to fly. That you are an eternal being in God's kingdom. And that you have something to live and to die for. And may you realize, as you hold this thread, as you journey further on, and you hear the call further up, further in, just how true this is. I invite you to join the resurrected parade today. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your cross and resurrection that gives us new life, that makes new life possible. I pray for anyone here today who needs that to come to life within them. Lord, would you just speak right into the place of death inside of them, into the weary parts of them, into the hurting parts of them would you breathe your breath of life of goodness of truth of beauty of the great wonder of who you are and would you bring them back to life may your spirit animate them and bring them joy in this moment your precious and holy name we pray lord jesus amen